I really enjoy reading, and I spend a lot of my leisure time reading. Uh, I know that's a pretty boring life, I know that. Uh, but I, I really do enjoy it. And one of my greatest joys thus far in 2020 has been reading, in my leisure time, three books that are written by Brett Baer. Uh, if you've watched Fox News, you've seen he's on a Fox News commentary. But he, he chronicles the history of the Cold War by focusing on three crucial days in the lives of three different presidents. And again, if you like, if you like history, uh, you'll enjoy this. The first book that I read was Three Days at the Brink, uh, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Uh, and not only does it deal with when, when, when Roosevelt and Stalin and Churchill met in Tehran uh, to kind of formalize and, and get D-Day planned, but it also, they talked about what does a post-World War II world look like. And really the beginnings of the Cold War began here. And, and, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading that book. The next book I read uh, is by, also by Brett Baer, Three Days in January, Dwight, uh, Dwight Eisenhower's Final Mission. Uh, and it takes the three days from January 17th until when John F. Kennedy was inaugurated and, and, and Eisenhower's final speech to the nation. And when he talks about uh, just some of the, the threats that are there and, and hopefully he's hoping that this young president will, will take some of his advice. Sadly, he, he doesn't and you have the Bay of Pigs fiasco. But it, it, again, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that book as well. But it deals about how the, kind of at the height... As the, as the tensions are heating up, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all, all these things. And, and Eisenhower's role and how Eisenhower really, uh, his philosophy in, in keeping the world safe from nuclear war. And then I'm about halfway through this book on three days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the fall of the Soviet Union, which basically covers the three days when, when uh, he went to uh, Moscow and got to the, the, the speech, in the back of the book is the speech that he gave to Moscow University, and basically his role in bringing the Cold War uh, to an end, uh, which resulted during the time of uh, the first George Bush, George a., uh, Herbert Walker Bush, uh, the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. And for a lot of you that are younger, uh, I mean, that may not seem like that big a deal to you, but, but I can remember when people would try to escape from East Germany into West Germany, uh, and, and from East Berlin to West Berlin, and people being killed and shot just because they wanted to leave and, and, and come to, to, to West Berlin where, where they had freedom. Um, in the writing of this book, uh, Three Days in Moscow, Brett Abair refers to the speech that, that then, he wasn't, he wasn't even governor then, of, of Ronald Reagan on March 30th, 1961, almost 60 years ago, Words that, that Reagan spoke on several different occasions. You may be able to see that, you may not, but, but it's, it's a quote that is worth reading. Quote, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. Man, that's a great line. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same, or one day... We will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free, unquote. Uh, that's, a, that's, that, that's, a great, uh, that's a great history lesson right there. Our country's founding documents did not establish our freedom, but rather stated what already existed according to natural law. We were, God intends us to be free. God intends all of us to be free. And human beings 
do not live. Part of what our founding documents state is the fact that, that human beings do not live in servitude to its government. Uh, government doesn't exist so that the, the people can serve it. But government exists to serve the people. As Lincoln said, we're a government of the people, by the people, and for the people uh, in, in doing that. And, and, and this is exactly Paul's point as he speaks to the, to the, uh, to the Ephesian church regarding their unity. Again, if you look at verse 3 that, that we read, he says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verse 3, Paul commands the Ephesian believers to eagerly, they are to, I mean, they're to go after it. They are to eagerly maintain the unity that is already in existence. As I said earlier, I'm going to say it again, and you'll hear me say it again. We need not establish unity in this church. It is not our job to establish unity. Unity already exists. It is our responsibility to keep it. We must keep, we must seek not to lose it, not, or not to destroy it, because it's something that we already possess. We are not here to establish unity. Churches are not to try to establish unity. Churches are to maintain that which has already been established for us. We can't, we, we, we've got to keep it. We must not lose it. We must not destroy it. It's something that's already been deposited to us as a local church. But it's, it's our task to keep it and to maintain it. As we look at this section on unity, in verses 4 through 6, Paul gives the proof of our unity. He gives, he gives us the doctrinal foundation of it. He gives us the proof of our unity. And in verses 7 through 16, it's followed by the means, our conduct, that is required to maintain or preserve our unity. What we're going to look at today is the proof of our unity. The doctrinal proof of our unity. Why I can say without any equivocation whatsoever, why I'm 100% certain and 100% sure that as a church we do not have to establish unity. That unity already exists. But what we are called to do is to protect it, to preserve it, to maintain it. Uh, and, and Paul lays down that spiritual truth. And then we'll look at next time, Lord willing, what it is. What the, how do we bring our conduct up to the level of our calling? What do we have to do in order to maintain or to preserve it? The proof of our unity is stressed by, the, in this passage, it is stressed by the sevenfold use of the word one in these three verses. We've already shown it to you before. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Seven times. You find the word one that is used there. Paul's trying to make a point here. So we find that the, the proof is used seven times. Paul uses that. But also in these verses, Paul makes the point. He makes the point that our unity is grounded in the Trinity. Our unity is grounded in the Trinity. Each person of the Trinity is shown to be a unifier as they work in unity to fulfill the purposes of God. Each verse, if, if, if you notice in, in, in verse 4 there, he talks about the Spirit. In verse 5, he talks about the Lord, which would be Christ. In verse 6, he talks about God the Father. So in verse 4, the unifier is the Spirit. 
In verse 5, the unifier is Christ. In verse 6, the unifier is God. And so in each of these, each of these verses, Paul makes the point that our unity is grounded in each person of the Trinity. And each person of the Trinity is shown to be a unifier as they work in unity to fulfill the purpose of the Godhead. The Trinity is, is a unity. He's the great three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one being. One being, three persons. He's unified. The, the Spirit and the Son and the Father are never in disagreement. They're always unified. They have different aspects and different roles and different responsibilities, but they are unified in carrying out the plans and purposes of God. And so our unity is not only seen in the fact that seven times we see that word one, 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 but we also see it in the fact that he, he, the Trinity is the ground. It's the theological grounding of our established unity. So let's look at verse 4, which is the unifying spirit, where he talks about one spirit, one body, one hope. One spirit, one body, one hope. Well, the spirit that is mentioned here is the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks about him. Look at chapter 2 and verse 18 of the book of Ephesians, where Paul says, For through Him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, you have the Trinity there. Through Him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One spirit to the Father. So our access, your access, and my access to the Father comes through the same Spirit. How, how, does, how does Carl have access to the Father? It's through the same Spirit that Larry has access to Him, that Marissa has access to Him, that Kim has access to Him. We all come to the Father the same exact way. The same, I, I don't say, well, hey, you know, you guys may go through... I, i got a higher way that I get to go. No, it's the same exact way. It's all united in the same exact way. There's not one person here that knows Christ that does not go to the Father through the same Spirit that everybody else does. One Spirit. One Spirit. And you and I are being built together as a temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Look at verse 22 of the same chapter where he says, In Him, in Christ... You, again, again, see the Trinitary, uh, the, the Trinitary formula here. In Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, reference to the Father, by the Spirit. In Christ, a dwelling place for God, by means or through the Spirit. You and I are being built together as the temple where the Spirit of God dwells. We're being built together as a temple. I'm part of the temple of God. You're part of the temple of God. And the Spirit of God resides within the temple of God. My body is the temple of God. The Spirit of God resides in it. Your body as a believer is the temple of God. The Spirit of God resides in it. But also, we are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God resides here. And the, 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 the universal body of Christ is the Spirit of God, is, is the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells there as well. So, we're all part of the same temple. We're all part of the same temple and dwelt by the same Spirit. And because we possess the one Spirit who gives us one access to the Father and is building us into one temple, 
we are also, verse 4 tells us, tells us that we are members of the same body. There is one body. One body. He's talking about the body of Christ. And the body being spoken of here is the universal body of Christ, consisting of all believers since the day of Pentecost. And the unity is to be evidenced in the practices of each local body of Christ. Every believer, every believer is part of the one body of Christ. But every believer is not a member of this church. A part of the body is the member of this church. But this local church is also a physical expression of the universal body of Christ. What is true about the universal body of Christ is true for us as well. Is the fact that our un- we are united. Uh, every believer since the day of Pentecost is part of the body of Christ. Part of the body of Christ. And we are part of that body. And we are to demonstrate the unity that exists within the body of Christ right here in this church. Proof of this unity is also evidenced by the fact that the Spirit has produced the same hope through God's sovereign call to salvation. We are one body, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and he's talking about here the call to salvation, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And this is true for every believer. What's our hope? What's our hope? Our hope is the fact that because the Father has called us to Himself, because we have been redeemed by Christ, because we have been forgiven of our sins through the Son, because, as Ephesians talks about, we have been sealed with the Spirit of Christ, guaranteeing our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification, that our hope is that the work that Christ has begun in us, the work that God has begun in us, is going to be fulfilled. I am, I am no longer a slave to sin. I've been set free from its power. I can choose to live a life. I can grow in Christ. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I need to be. But I'm moving forward. Sometimes, sometimes I feel like I'm taking more steps backward than I'm going forward. But I'm moving forward. It's, it's small steps. But I'm moving forward. That's my hope. That I, I'm not going to be the same old sorry sap that I, that I used to be. And that I'm changing and that I'm growing. And that because of, of, of who Christ is and the work of the Spirit in my life, that I, I, I'm becoming more like Him. And there's going to become a day when I'm going to be set free from the very presence of sin. I'm going to be in His presence. I'm going to have a glorified physical body. And I'm not going. To, I'm going to be. I'm going to be like my Savior. I'll, I'll no longer have to deal with sinful thoughts. I'll no longer have to question my motives. I'll no longer have to guard my tongue. I, I, I'll no longer have to have feelings of jealousy or hatred or pride or, or or arrogance. I'll be set free. And for every believer who loves the Lord, that's our hope going to change. We're going to be different. And, and even as I'm talking about it, doesn't it ring true in your soul? Don't you long for that day? 
Don't, don't, uh, as you look at your weak and look, look at, the, at your failures and look at your shortcomings, and as I look at my failures and look at my shortcomings, Lisa was reading something, uh, reading, I think, uh, Our Utmost, was it Our Utmost for His Highest? What was that book that you were reading? Okay. Okay. And, and we were, I was reading a book, and, I, and, and she was reading, and, 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 and she read a sentence about what's your greatest fear was is, is loneliness what was it loneliness uh and there were two other things loneliness health and i and uh i forget what the other one was huh memory yeah it probably was it memory yeah uh lon- oh loneliness health and failure loneliness health and failure and she she said what's your greatest fear and i said well out of the i mean out of those three I said, well, you know, I, I can live by myself. I mean, loneliness is no big deal to me. Uh, you know, I don't really, health doesn't really, I don't feel that. I said, probably failure. I lose three. But I said, what really is my biggest fear is that I will not finish my life well. That's my biggest fear. But then I think about he, and I, and I thought about that, and Lisa said, well, what ways? And I just said, well, there's all kinds of temptations. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of ways you can blow it and not finish your life well. But later that evening, at least had fallen asleep, and later that evening I was thinking, and I thought, you know what? Why am I fearing that? I think I need to be cautious, but, but doesn't Scripture say, he who, who, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it? And I thought, maybe... Maybe I should. Maybe instead of being fearful about it, I ought to be cautious. I ought to be aware of it. But maybe I shouldn't fear it. Maybe fearing it is a sin. And trusting that the Lord, if I'll just walk with Him day by day, step by step, moment by moment, that won't be true in my life. That won't be true in my life. We have the same hope. We have the same hope. The proof of our unity is portrayed by possessing the same Spirit who has placed us in the same body and whose sealing guarantees the acquisition of the same hope. If you are a child of God, this is true about you. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. It is true of us. We possess the same Spirit who has placed us in the same body universally and locally, who has sealed all of us if we're a child of God. We've been sealed by the Spirit of God, which guarantees the acquisition of the same hope. Unity already exists. Verse 5 we see the unifying Son. Look at verse 5 again, where he says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just as previously there was one Spirit, as it related to one body and one hope, now we have one Lord as it relates to one faith and one baptism. In this verse, Paul's proof of our unity is anchored in the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. We have one Lord. Christ is the Lord who provided us in chapter 1 and verse 7 of of Ephesians. He provided us redemption. Look at the text. It says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We have one hope in Him. It says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And Christ is the head of the church. He is the head. My head in the church is Christ. Your head in the church is Christ. Look at verse 22. He says, And He put all things, He, the Father, put all things under His feet, Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We were redeemed by the same... Lisa, who redeemed you? Huh? The Lord. Deity who redeemed you? The Lord. Jackie, who redeemed you? Jesus, the Lord. We're all redeemed by the same person. By the same person. We all have... Our hope is placed in Him. And He is the head over the church. He's the one that we are called to please. We have one Lord who's provided us redemption and hope and who's incorporated us into His body. But not only do we have one Lord, we have one faith. And the one faith here is not a reference to the objective body of truth that's found in Scripture, but rather to the subjective faith which is exercised by all true believers. Look at chapter 1 and verse 13. He's talking about us coming to faith. He's not talking about the faith as it relates to the truths, the doctrinal truths that we believe that are found in Scriptures. He's talking about the faith that was exercised in coming to Christ. Look at chapter 1, as we said, in verse 13. He says, In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, there's the faith, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You believed and you were sealed. You exercised faith, and you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Now listen, we don't agree on all the various aspects of the faith, do we? We don't. Some of you may not agree with some of the things I say today. As it relates to, especially when we get to one baptism. You You may not agree. We don't agree on all aspects of the faith. And that's okay. That's okay. So this one faith, because we don't agree on all the aspects of the faith, in one sense we're not in complete unity. We are in unity about the the major things. But when it comes to all the aspects of, of doctrine, we're not in agreement. We're not in agreement. And there are some legitimate disagreements and there are some illegitimate disagreements. But we all, however, we all have the same common experience of faith. Different circumstances. I came to Christ when I was almost eight years old through vacation Bible school. I doubt if there's anybody else here that almost came to to Christ when they were almost eight years old through vacation Bible school. Now, you may have came through Christ through vacation Bible school, but your your circumstance, mine was in Ohio. I don't think anybody else was in Ohio. The circumstances—excuse me—the circumstances are different. However, it was the same conversion. I recognized my need of a Savior. I recognized my sins separated me from God. I knew that without Christ, I had no hope. And I asked Christ to forgive me and save me, and He did. 
He did. Now, how you came to Christ is going to look different from how I came to Christ as it relates to the circumstances, but how we were saved, it's exactly the same. You cried out to the Lord, didn't you? You asked Christ to save you, didn't you? And so did I. So did I. You may have done it at home. You may have done it at church. You may have done it behind the wheel of a car. You may have done it on your knees. You may have done it standing up. You may have done it sitting down. You may not have said anything verbally. You may have said very little verbally. You may have said a whole lot verbally. But the truth is, is that everybody who is a child of God came to Christ exactly, who became a child of God exactly the same way by coming to Christ in faith. One faith. One faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One faith. One faith. The last phrase, one baptism, is probably the most debated of all the, all the phrases here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So how do we determine what baptism is being referred to? This is my, this is my opinion. I, I think I can make a valid case for it. You may disagree, and that, that's okay. Who is the unifier in our baptism? And, and as you look at verse 4, again, verse 4, the unifier is the Spirit. Verse 6, the unifier is God the Father. In verse 5, the unifier is one Lord. So Christ is the unifier here. With that being the case, to me, it, it, to me, this helps make the argument that spirit baptism is not what's being referenced here. Because the unifier here is not the spirit. The unifier here is Christ. So, so the baptism of the spirit is, is, is the baptism into the body of Christ. By the spirit into the body of Christ. And, and the unifier there is the spirit. So here I would think that the, the unifier being Christ, that, that's why I would make the argument why I don't think this is spirit baptism. While most commentators believe that this is a reference to water baptism, and I think you can make a good argument for this, to me it's certainly, and it certainly could be, but once again, when we are baptized, we are immersed in the name of all three persons. The unifier, we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinitarian formula that we find in Matthew's Gospel that we're baptized in, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so the unifier there is all three persons of the Trinity. But still Christ is. But then also, I, I, and, and if that's a weak argument, I, the, also the argument that I would make would be this. Will there be New Testament saints in glory who have not experienced water baptism by immersion? And my answer is yes. There's going to be a lot of them. I know a lot of Presbyterians who know the Lord, but not been immersed. Have not what I would call scriptural baptism. So, in my opinion, it's not water baptism here either because water baptism is not a unifier in the sense that, that I think there's going to be saint, there's saints in heaven right now. Saints in heaven right now that have not been, in my opinion, scripturally baptized. So, what's the third option? Is there a third option? I think there is a third option. And the third option is this, that this one baptism re- refers metaphorically to our identification with Christ in His death and resurrection. Again, remember, the unifier here is the Christ. Keep your place there in Ephesians and go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, or God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live, live, live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I'm proposing that our water baptism is the visible manifestation of this inward reality. If I'm understanding this verse correctly, that when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I was baptized, I was identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the moment I trusted Christ, that I was baptized. I'm I'm, I'm not talking about being put into the body of Christ. That I was baptized or I was identified with Jesus in His death and in His resurrection. Uh, The Old Testament talks about that when it talks about the Israelites uh, going uh, through the water, that they were baptized unto Moses. They were identified with Moses. And so what I think is going on here is the fact that, that, and I think our water baptism is the visible manifestation of that. In fact, we talk about that. Raised in, uh, or buried in the likeness of His death, raised in the likeness of His resurrection. Is that, do you have to wait on your water baptism for that to occur? That you're not really identified with Christ in His death and resurrection until you are baptized in, in, in literal water? And my answer would be no. I think that occurs at salvation. That the moment I trust Christ, I'm identified with Him in His death and in His resurrection, which means from the moment, what Romans 6 is about, is that from the moment of my salvation, I have been set free from the power of sin. And I'm identified, I am dead to sin, and I'm alive unto God, and from the time of my salvation, I can immediately be, I'm no longer enslaved to sin, I'm a slave to King Grace, and I become someone who now can resist sin. Sin no longer has dominion over me. Does every believer experience that? My answer would be yes. Is every believer immersed what I would call scriptural baptism? And I would say, no. No. I, I don't think this one baptism is either, is either spirit or water. What I do think is, it is it's talking about our... Because baptism is, is, to, is to identify. I think it's referring to our identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is something that every believer experiences. When you trusted Christ as your Savior you were at that very moment identified with the death and resurrection with Christ. And if you're not identified with His death and resurrection, you have no power over sin. But we do have power over sin, not because of of, of who we are, but because of our identification with Jesus Christ's death and birth. As you read, again, just look at what we... We won't read the whole thing, but look at what we read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin... Still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too 
might walk in newness of life. He says, if we've been united with Him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like this. And he goes on and on to talk about how we have power over sin now. That we no longer have to be controlled by sin. One Lord, one faith, our experience of faith. We have the same Lord, saved by the same person, redeemed by the same person, have our hope in the same person. We have one faith. We may have our, our circumstances in coming to Christ might look different, but our conversion experience is exactly the same. Our, uh, the, the, the experience of our faith, one Lord, one faith, and our one baptism is the fact that we all have been identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The proof of our unity is found in our common experience of faith to the same Lord with whom we all identify with by our baptism in His one death and resurrection. That's the proof of our unity. We have a common experience of faith. We have a common experience of faith to the same Lord. To the same Lord. And we've also been identified with this same Lord in His death and His resurrection. We don't have to create unity. We don't have to establish unity. It's already been done for us. Then finally, verse 6, you have the unifying Father, God and Father of us all. Again, look at verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Catch a theme there? All, 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 all. The key words in this verse, it's the seventh use of the word one. This is the seventh time Paul uses the word one. We have one God, and then four times in this verse, panta. In the form of panta. All, 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 all. Now, the question to ask is, who's the all? Who's the all? And there's two possibilities. It's either every human being, or it's only believers. So how do we determine that? Well, who is being commanded? Whoever is being commanded... comprises the all. Who's ever being commanded comprises the all. And so to whom is the command addressed? Believers. God is not the father of all humanity. God is the creator of all humanity, but He's only father to those who put their faith in His Son. God's my father. God's my father. God was not Hitler's father. He was Hitler's creator. But he wasn't Hitler's father. But God's my father. God is the father of only those who put their faith. There's no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God. God's not everybody's father. He's not everybody's father. So the all here, who is Paul speaking to? Is Paul speaking to to every human being in this passage? No. Paul is only speaking to believers. So he is one God and Father of all. He's the Father of all believers, who is over all believers, and through all believers, and in all believers. So this one God is identified as the Father of all. Every believer has the same bloodline. You know, you've heard the phrase, well, they're a blood relative. You know, they're a blood relative. 
which means that you know, they're not my in-laws some way. You know, they're, they're a blood relative. We are blood relatives. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood was shed in order for you and I to have a relationship with the Father. We have a bloodline, and that bloodline is through the blood of Christ. Every believer has the same bloodline. We are blood relatives through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not only is He the Father of us all, He is, he is the one who is over all. In other words, He is the sovereign over every believer. He is the one to whom we are accountable. When you die, who are you going to give an account of your life to? Me? <laughs> no way. Your spouse? Nope. Your parents? No. Your children? No. The Apostle Paul? No. John the Baptist? No. Who are you going to give an account for how you've lived your life? The same person I'm going to give an account to for how I live my life. God. God, I'm responsible for me. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility towards you and helping you in your growth and your sanctification and vice versa. But when I stand before God, when I stand before God, I do not have to give an account for the choices that Lisa made. I don't have to give an account for that. I do have to give an account for the choices that I made. And I can't say, well, if Lisa would have just done this, God, then, then I would have done this. And God will go, nope, sorry, don't work that way. That's the Hebrew version of it, you know. It doesn't work that way. Because you are accountable for you. You are accountable for you. And so we are all accountable to the same God. The God that I answer to is the same God that you will answer to. He is over all. He is also through all. His work, He works His purposes through us. We are His instruments of grace. Ephesians talks about the fact that we are His workmanship. We're His workmanship. God, God is working in your, God's work in your life looks different than my life. It's, go, it's for the same goal, to make us look like Christ. But there's things that, that God's got to, got to hammer a little bit harder on me to, to mold and to shape. And, and, and some things are already there. And, and they look different in your life. And they look different in my life. But we are all God's workmanship. The person who is changing us into the image of Christ and who works in and through us in order that we might be instruments of grace and sanctification in the lives of others is the same God. The one who works and changes me is the same one who works and changes you. God. God works in my life. God changes me in order that I might be a blessing to other people. And the one that works in your life and is changing you in order that you might be a blessing to other people is the same God. It's the same God. Because this one God is not only over all, He's also through all, and He's also in all. Over all, the God of Father who is over all, and through all and in all. God not only is over us, God not only works through us, but God also resides within us. We have the intimacy of His presence. The same God that lives within me lives within you. And the person sitting next to you as a believer lives within them. And the potential of, a, of intimate relationship is just as great for all of us. Because the same God resides within us. 
He resides within us. The proof of our unity is found in our common progenitor to whom we are intimately connected and personally responsible for fulfilling His purpose, which is to bring Him glory. The same God, the same God that I am intimately connected to, you are intimately connected to. The one that I'm personally responsible to, you're personally responsible to. The one who's working out His purposes in me in order to be able to be a blessing to others is the same God that is working out His purposes in you in order for you to be a blessing to others so that it all might go back to His glory. Our, I mean, I tell you what, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this. But our unity has been established. It's been established through the work of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity has already established our unity. That's why it's not about politics. That's why it's not about whether you want hymns or you want praise choruses. That's why it's not about whether the color of your skin. That's not why it's about the size of a home that you live in. That's why it's not about uh, your personality. That's why it's not about whether you're, whether you're a, an okay boomer you know, or you're, you're a millennial. It's got nothing to... Especially for you, Lisa. Uh, that's, that's, that's why it's not anything about that. It's not anything about that. What unites us is the Trinity. We have the same God who is over us all and who is, works through us all. And, uh, and He's in us all. We have the same Christ and have had the same conversion experience, the one faith experience and the one baptism being united in His death and resurrection so that we have all been set free from the power of sin. And we have the same Spirit that's provided us the one hope of our calling. The one hope of our calling. We have the same Spirit that makes us part of the one body. It's been established. It's been established. And that's why the church should be a place where if you know Christ, come on in and be a part of us. And if you don't know Christ, come know Christ and come on and be a part of us. That's why you don't have to check off which, which political party you're involved in. That's why there, there's, no, there's no racial profiling. That, that's why there's no, uh, 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 what language do you speak? Now, hopefully you speak, at least can understand English, because that's, that's all I, and it's not even good English that it comes from here, you know. That's why all those things don't matter. Because our unity is established in the Trinity. And that's a whole lot more secure than anything else. That's a whole lot more secure than anything else. And praise God, it's not our responsibility to establish it. You want to know what it looks like to try to establish unity? By human beings trying to establish unity? Look at the United Nations. How much unity is there? That's what it exists for. It exists to make sure that the world is, the world is united. <laughs> you know, I don't think they're doing a great job myself. When human, human beings are, do not have the capability of establishing unity. 
We, we can't do it. It, it, we, we, now, we, we, we try to keep unity within our family, we try to do, but, but it, it's, got, it's got to be something beyond that. And in the church, God has already established it. We do not have the responsibility of establishing unity in the church because we simply can't do it. However, though, this unity can be lost or destroyed. And our text calls us to maintain it, to protect it, and to preserve it, eager to maintain. That's the idea of that word, maintain, to protect, to preserve. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we bring our conduct to the level of our calling? And that's what, we're not going to look at it today, but that's what verses 7 through 16 talks about. How do we do it? By the proper use of the diversity of spiritual gifts within the unified body of Christ. God uses diversity of gifts to maintain unity of the body. That's why every gift is important. That's why you, if you're a member of this church, that's why you Using your spiritual gift is vital. It's not about our personal fulfillment. It's not about discovering our spiritual gift so we can walk around and say, well, I got this gift, and I got this gift, and I've got this gift. It's what God has given us to maintain, to protect, to preserve the unity. Through diversity of gifts, He protects the unity of the body, which means every gift is vital, which means if you're part of this church, your service is needed in this church. Your gift is needed in this church. And if you're not exercising your gift, it makes it harder to maintain and to protect and to preserve the unity that is ours that's already been established by the Trinitarian God puts a whole nother spin on the gifts of the Spirit. Puts a whole nother spin on the gifts of the Spirit. May God help us. May God help us. May, may we rejoice in the fact that He's established unity for us. We need to praise God. He did it in He's not expecting us to do it. But at the same time, we need to ask Him for the grace and the strength and the ability and the attitude to make sure that we maintain, that we protect, and that we preserve our unity. And we do so by exercising our spiritual gifts. One more question before we close. Are you part of the body of Christ? In other words, do you have a relationship with God through, the, uh, through, through Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ? Do you know Christ as your Savior? If you do, you're part of His body. If you don't, you're not going to stand before Him in His presence when you die. 
I've already shared with you the gospel, what the gospel is. And our plea to you today is, if you don't know Christ, to call out to Him today. And for those of us who do, I trust and pray that we'll thank God for the fact that He's already established our unity and, and be in awe and wonder at, 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 at the Trinity, at the work of the Spirit. And notice it was Spirit, Son, and Father. At the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son and the work of the Father that are working together in unity to ensure the unity of His people, to ensure the unity of His, of his children. May we praise God and may we ask God to help us as we work it out in our local assembly and seek to maintain and preserve and protect it by the exercising of our spiritual gifts. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness to us. May the truths of your word go deep within our hearts. May it make it change in how we live. Father, may it uh, help us to um, grow in, in grace and appreciate your work. Thank you for this time. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the unity that you've established. May we be eager. May we with full vigor Guard it and protect it, maintain it, persevere in it for your glory and for our good. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Not sure what your need is this morning, but the Lord knows. Trust and pray that the Lord will use His Word to encourage and strengthen you. We're going to go to the Lord in a time of silence. And after that time of silence, we'll ask our ushers to come as we continue our worship together. Let's go to the Lord.